It's Friday the 10th of March. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's headlines. A global treaty to protect the oceans is agreed, while here at home a study finds devastating loss of Irish plant life. And confirmation that global carbon dioxide emissions reached an all-time high in 2022, with a special report from The Guardian identifying 1,000 super-emitting leaks that risk triggering climate tipping points. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I'm Dara Wynn and we have a big mix of stories this week. And as always, to discuss them with me, I'm joined by Anna Pringle and Kira Daly. How are you doing? Good morning, Dara. It's a dull, grey, cold day in Dublin. That's how I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you, Kira? I'm good. It's not uh, grey. It's actually snowing here in Galway, which <gasps> oh, really? may surprise some people to hear. Really disappoints me. I hate the snow, but I'm surviving. I'm doing it for the people. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And a uh, reminder to the people, if you love what Kira's doing and love what we're doing, we have set up a buy me a coffee where you can donate some money t- for the upkeep of the podcast basically and if you want to donate you can do that on buymeacoffee.com forward slash the climate alarm and dara we had um someone mysterious this week bought a coffee saying coffee kira Ooh. i was wondering it might have been our friend big oh bernie oh my god from me <laughs> i don't know and then also a big thank you to leah and to michelle who contributed this week as well we really appreciate it yeah oh my thank god, you i feel emotional <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's get into our first story, which is some good news uh, that on Sunday, a global ocean treaty was signed. And this made, this was headline news for a while on Sunday, at least got quite a bit of coverage. Um, And the news of the following two decades of consideration and effort, delegates from around the world agree to language for a far reaching global treaty aimed at protecting biodiversity on the high seas and in the deep oceans of the world. So at the moment, only 1% of that area is protected. And this is a treaty that's going to push for far more protection of that. And it's it's sort of in keeping with something that we mentioned back last season, the Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, um, known as the 30 by 30 pledge, where there's an aim that we will protect 30% of the world's natural habitats by 2030. So, yeah, that treaty, I think it's a good news story to get us going today. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing to see the reactions from Greenpeace and other environmentalists really saying that this is like a historic, the biggest conservation victory ever. Um, now, of course, it does have to be ratified by governments and it does have to be implemented, but, um, but it did seem like it was genuinely a massive breakthrough. What do you mean when you say it has to be ratified? So it's an international treaty. So now governments have to go and vote to say, yeah, we support that. So, ah, okay. yeah. So same with other treaties like the Paris Agreement, for example. Governments around the world had to vote to say, yes, we support that. It's ratified by this country. Okay. Otherwise, it doesn't apply. Yeah. But yeah, So obviously yeah. the goal is to have as many governments as possible ratifying it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Good maritime um, uh, metaphor there. Oh. <laughs> yes, I I uh, consciously made that comment. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what you said there, Anna, as well, about implementing it. That's obviously yeah. a massive challenge. I've, I hear the oceans are quite big. Um, 
and uh, enforcing <laughs> enforcing it is going to be a really is going to be a really difficult thing. And actually having that sort of global political will to do it um, won't come easy. But as with all of these things, it's a good first step. It's a good development. So let's uh, let's take yeah. it as a win. And symbolically, it's important because the oceans are doing a lot of work for us right now in terms of saving us from global warming and feeding the planet and so on. So they need to be protected. Saving us from ourselves. Mm -hmm, They are. If it wasn't for the oceans, the planet would already be way hotter. Yeah, yeah. So the oceans have absorbed a good bit of the CO2 the excess CO2 that we have produced. So yeah, much, much more warming um, if we didn't have the ocean. So fair play to them. Yeah. Right. So you two are kind of chomping at the bit to get to the bad news. What is it? Uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> unfortunately, things on a grassroots level in Ireland are in a very bad state because a study this week found that more than half of Ireland's native plants are in decline. While many of the habitats on which Irish plants depend have been destroyed or altered by farming and forestry since the 1950s. So that's a study by the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. And uh, yeah, it makes for pretty grim reading. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there for me that's, you know, we already know, for example, we already know that peatlands have been damaged by um, by peat extraction and by planting forests on them we know that grasslands have been uh, affected by the intensification of agriculture in particular beef and dairy but seeing it all laid out in this one report is uh, is pretty stark I think of the 1939 species recorded in Ireland 952 were native and 987 were non-native. So that means that there are more non-native species of plant in Ireland now than there are native. Um, Which, yeah, is just really, really grim. Um, So why is it grim? Why are you racist against plants? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Why is it grim? It's grim because... Native species in Ireland or in anywhere all combine together. So native plants, native animals, uh, fungi, everything all combine together to make functioning ecosystems. That they have Mm -hmm. these relationships that have developed over millions of years so that they all support each other and help each other to thrive. Yeah. The problem with non-native species, some of them, for example... um, I think are what are called naturalized, where they can have some positive impacts, like horse chestnut trees, I think, aren't native, but they still kind of support, um, still kind of support native wildlife. Then things like sycamore, that's like more, more blurry. Some people would regard that as an invasive species because while it does serve some purposes, it also outcompetes native species. Yeah. Um, and we see things like particularly rhododendron, um, Japanese knotweed, that these species um, have no natural predators. They're not part of the natural system. And they just completely overtake um, 
overtake the the natural habit, the natural ecosystems, especially when those ecosystems are degraded, and yep. they sort of outcompete or native systems. So once they're kind of, once invasives get into the system, then they make the natural ecosystems and the natural environment worse and worse and worse and are providing little to no benefit to species or people. Yeah. I mean, rhododendron is a good example because it actually chokes out natural forests. Mm -hmm. So it prevents them from regenerating just because it's so dominant. Um, So yeah, so that's a good example. Yeah, and then I think another... Another good example from this study is Nut- Nuttles pondweed. I hope I'm I'm pronouncing that correctly. But this looked at who? you know this looked Nuttles. at who is this Nuttle? Is this <coughs> Nuttle a person or what? Uh, I'm going to say yes, he, but I have no. Did he discover? Idea. Did he? I want to know. Did he discover the pondweed and how did he discover it? <laughs> well, <laughs> tune in next week, guys, because <laughs> Anna's doing her homework this week. What kind of weirdo lurking around ponds? Like um, <laughs> But yeah, so aquatic plants were looked at as well. And this really shows kind of the interaction between people affecting habitats, invasives, and that kind of negative uh, negative feedback. Lakes and wetlands have been severely affected since the last report was compiled. And what it says is some lakes are now dominated by few aquatic plants favoured by nutrient enrichment, such as the introduced Nuttles pondweed. So basically nutrient enrichment... That's from runoff from, um, from it could be from farms, it could be from forestry, but it's basically that there has been nutrients so much from, fertilizer. from fertilizer, from maybe from dung or slurry or from peatlands that are now kind of moving and leaching um, as a result of degradation and maybe conifer plantations. That nutrient enrichment is then providing conditions for this non-native species that species that is then outcompeting the native species. So I think that kind of shows how yeah, the interaction between all different factors that is is leading and contributing to these uh yeah, to this degradation that we're yep. seeing. Yeah. And I suppose so then like the the explanation you said for the, how the ocean is basically helping us to keep surviving in the midst of everything that's going on. We need those native species to also do the same here on land. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, well, particularly we need we need the native functioning, thriving ecosystems. So we've seen things. I mean, we talked about studies before of birds being in decline. We've talked about other things about um, species being in decline. First of all species and animals and plants like they have their own intrinsic value (laughs) Mm -hmm. so without getting into any of the climate debate you know it's a tragedy that we're losing these plants and these animals that us as humans have evolved with and us as irish people have built our culture with and around um and so losing that is just tragic from all sorts of all sorts of point of views anyways but in terms of what you were saying about having those species help us with climate change, having the functioning ecosystems helps us with climate change because functioning, thriving peatlands and wetlands um, and forests absorb emissions. They yeah. they sequester carbon, but also when we get shocks, when we get climate impacts like uh, severe drought, those functioning ecosystems 
store and release water more slowly so they protect against drought and also when we get extreme rainfall they absorb um they absorb the rain more slowly um meaning it's less likely that we'll have flooding um so yeah we absolutely yeah so i mean it's just in so many ways and so when we see like last week we talked about people burning hills again, when mm. you see people cutting turf, when you see people destroying hedgerows, which we do, thousands of kilometres of hedgerows being destroyed. When you look at all that, the outcome of it is we have lost, we've devastated the plants yeah. and ecosystems that we have. That's what we're doing. And, and meanwhile, the IFA is in the Arctic looking for more money for sheep farmers. Sheep are very, very destructive to all sorts of plants, um, you know, and and we're planting forestry that's conifer monoculture plantations in wrong places like bogs. I mean, like it's like <sighs> Dara's analogy: we're in the car, putting the foot on the accelerator, driving in the wrong direction faster. Yeah, that's an analogy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a great line in um, Caroline O'Doherty, I think it was, was writing about this in the Indo this week. And the line that she quoted from somebody was that bio-monotony is replacing biodiversity. Which oh, that's is like, a great yeah. word. <laughs> Stark, but true. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it's one of these things that it's very hard to see in real time, but... No, it's not. If you drive around the countryside, you see it in real time. You see the destruction. It's only if daily. you're tuned in. Only if you're only, tuned yeah, in. Yeah, only if you're tuned in. But also, for example, Anna, like, there used to be curlews yeah. on the farm where I grew up. I never saw them, though. So I don't know that they're gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't feel, you don't personally feel the loss. Yeah, it's this you, thing called shifting yeah. baseline syndrome that I assumed that every, that the level of nature that was around when I was young, that that was the, yeah. that was the standard level and some things have disappeared since I was younger. But actually, if you go back 30 years, there was even more. And if you go back another 30 years, there was even more. And then what's really sad for me about that is as we lose that nature, it's harder for people to connect with nature. And then because yep. it's harder to connect with nature, you don't value it. And then because you don't value it, we lose even more of it. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one and it's a sad one, but um, there is still loads of amazing nature around and there is still so much to appreciate if you know where to look for it and where to find it. So and it can come back. I mean, one Absolutely. of the things one of the things that we're seeing with people who are doing rewilding projects and so on is that the the soil retains um, almost memories of some of these plants. There are seeds that will come back. Wow. They will they will recolonize areas if they're allowed to, if they're left alone and allowed to do that. Yeah, we just have to get. <laughs> Get a bit more comfortable with doing less and just yeah. leave the bloody plants alone. What did you call that syndrome, Dara? <laughs> uh, that was a lovely point, Kira. A really, really <laughs> lovely point. Yeah, yeah. Um, shifting baseline syndrome. And there's actually... Shifting. I'm going to start like a climate diary or climate term diary and that is going in it because that's a good one to explain yeah. to people. <laughs> Pretend I'm, um, I know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it last week we were talking about avoid shift move? And, uh, <laughs> and now it's shifting, shifting baselines. What, what's your baseline for shifting, Kira? An Irish guide to shifting nature. Um, A climate idiot's guide. Great, great. Let's kind of keep going with this here. Uh, there's a lovely video, actually, which I will find about shifting baseline syndrome. Um, 
uns, that I will, uns, uns, uns. <laughs> that I'll push. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. It's a, I will never think of that phrase the same way again. Um, <laughs> Look what you started, Dara. Yeah, there's a there's a great, if I can find it, there's a great video that I'll put in the show notes this week about shifting baseline syndrome. Oh God, it's going to be a dirty episode. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> All right. Um, recover from that, Dara. And I think over to you. That's how I'm going to recover. <laughs> okay, just as we lightened the mood. Um, so our next story is we are going to look at the International Energy Agency. They had a report that came out this week about 2022 emissions globally. Um we already know that Irish emissions went up last year, but they have found that global CO2 emissions grew by 0.9% or 321 megatons into 2022. And that reaches a new high, a new annual high. So, so yeah, so the highest rec- a record year for carbon emissions um, in 2022 and what was causing it, there's a lot of different things causing it, but um, coal co- grew last year by, by 1.6%, which coal is the dirtiest fuel, and that's kind of disappointing, but a lot of that was exacerbated by the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Global airline traffic increased as well, um, so oil grew by 2.5%, and a lot of that surge was from the aviation sector. So if you think about it, after the pandemic, aviation dropped it came back again in 2022. So when you're listening to all the ads for holidays, keep that in mind. Um, so, yeah, so it has been accelerating over time. A um, couple of other stats from it. Some good news, too, though. I mean, emissions from natural gas, so-called natural gas, fossil gas, fell by 1.6%. And actually, that was a, also in response to the war in Ukraine, where Europe in particular stopped using as much gas. Um, as I said, coal grew, oil grew, emissions in China were flat, although some of that is due to their COVID restrictions. So now that they've lifted that, we'll see if their emissions start to go up again. In the US, the biggest emitter per capita, emissions grew by 0.8%. Um, and partly the reason the emissions were growing there was because of extreme temperatures. So if you think about it as it's getting hotter, people are using more air conditioning, and and so all the extreme temperatures are actually causing emissions to grow. Compound so it's a, it's a mm, yeah, yeah, it's a or, bad negative feedback loop. Yeah, yeah, it's a f- that's a that's a funny one. I know there have been studies done into sort of needing less, needing more air conditioning in the win- in the summer, but also needing less heating in the in the winter. Uh, so it's yeah it's not in yeah it's it's something you're that trying I to think say is, it's not all bad <laughs> no 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 but it's just something that i think that last i saw it wasn't clear what the net outcome well, yeah, was like, going to be yeah like the gas demand in europe was helped by a mild winter or start a mild yeah. start to the winter um but they reckon about 60 megatons so about 20 percent of the increase can be attributed to cooling and heating demand in extreme weather. Yeah, and another 55 megatons to nuclear power plants being offline, which in large part is also due to extreme weather. So, for example, the droughts 
Uh, rivers running dry in France last summer meant nuclear power plants had to be shut down because um, they couldn't cool them and so on. So, so there's a there's a lot of feedback loops happening there that are not necessarily good. Yeah, yeah, and I even think like you know the fact you said gas has gone down, like in part because of the war in Ukraine. That's probably part of the reason why coal went up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the so the net outcome of that um, is more is more emissions. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's hard to know what to say about it. Um, well, interestingly, the IEA were relatively. Um, well, relatively positive about it in that they said they o- it only grew by 0.9%. Um, <laughs> who are the IEA? The International Energy Agency who did the analysis okay. of this and that they would be kind of an international body that are very credible. Um, so they were saying that it could have been worse, like it grew less than expected. Le- or, sorry, it rose less than initially feared. And, and the main reason for that was clean energy growth offset much of the impact of greater coal and oil use. So if you think about it, clean energy is growing, that is good, but if, it, if but, but it's offsetting greater coal and oil use. So yeah. if it was growing and we didn't have coal and oil growing as well, we'd be much better off. It's sort of like yeah. kind of a non, a non thing, for lack of a better word. It's sort of like the homeless figures here in Ireland just a load of numbers but it doesn't actually bloody mean anything at the end like the behaviors it's yeah. it's really the behaviors that that need to be looking at and be reported on and like basically we just see we just choose one devil over another yeah for sure it's like if yeah. you're having it's like if you're having chips for lunch and then you say no i'm going to be healthy i'm going to have a salad but then you have it with, with chips as well yeah. um, tara will you leave women alone you're always at <laughs> them to change their diets <laughs> that's a joke he doesn't yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> he's always giving me chips. Uh, <laughs> I feel worse that you had to clarify that, Kira. Um, but uh, yeah, it's and it's totally. I think when you look at that whole scenario, global, as you say, global renewable usage is going up, but it's not replacing uh, burning fossil fuels. It's in addition to it. There are countries where you know, it's kind of acceptable that their fossil fuel usage would be going up, you know, maybe lesser developed countries where um, we're bringing these things, we're bringing bringing maybe some fossil fuel, um, increased fossil fuel usage online is is acceptable in terms of a just transition and that kind of thing. But it puts even more of an onus on us developed countries to reduce our emissions rapidly and and drastically um because we need we need it to go down we need it's all well and good the renewable um renewable energy increasing but we need um fossil fuel uh powered energy decreasing and us in the developed world have the most responsibility to do that yeah, we absolutely do. And there's a lot riding on 2030. I mean, there's all these goals for 2030 and so on. And and yet emissions, I, I, I mean, it just, it's it's thrown out there all the time. Yeah. And yet emissions are continuing to rise. Yeah, I wonder year. Wh- what year, uh, in what year, I'd say it's going to happen. Maybe we can put bets on it or have a sweepstakes. Yeah. 2025 is my guess. 
Well, <laughs> you don't, don't even know what the question is. <laughs> I, go on, ask the question. No, let's hear. Let's hear the. Uh, oh yeah, so I think you, you're going to say in what year are we going to start pushing 2030 off a bit? Yeah, that's exactly what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah, in what year yeah. are we going to wow, start saying about psychic. 2040? 2025. Yeah, no, that's a good shout. Because we have to keep it at least five years away, because then we don't have to do anything now. Yeah, true. Uh, one electoral cycle. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah, let the shinners deal with it. That's going to be the... Uh, Anna, <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, the good news is in, in the EU, emissions fell 2.5%, so it can be done. And that was thanks to record renewables. Um, now, Ireland did not contribute to that falling because I think our emissions were up about 5 or 6% in 2022, so we Go can't on, take any, any credit for that. Um <laughs> And then, like, one of the... So that, so that was kind of depressing news. And then some other depressing news. The Guardian did this major report this week. I don't know if you guys saw it, um, where they have identified what they're calling super-emitting methane sites and leaks um, that are triggering climate tipping points. So you might recall that methane is a much more warming gas, about 80 times as bad as carbon dioxide, it's responsible for about 25% of global heating today. Wow. And scientists have been saying that there's a surge going on in methane emissions, but they haven't been able to quite identify what's been causing that. And this could be one of the biggest threats to actually meeting the goal of reducing global warming. So the Guardian has identified about a thousand what they are calling super-emitting methane leak sites. And guess what industry is mostly to blame for that? Anybody? Birds? <laughs> yeah, it's the fossil fuel industry. Well done, Kira. Um, <laughs> so what is happening is that methane is emitted as part of oil and gas drilling and oil and gas production. So you think about those platforms you see on the North Sea or those oil wells you, you see images of. A lot of the time what they are doing is they are deliberately leaking gas. Not leaking, but deliberately emitting gas to reduce pressure or whatever, and it's methane, it's going straight into the atmosphere. And then also there's a lot of leaks going on as well. So, um, yeah, so so the Guardian has identified the sites of where these events are. They're all over the world and they're everywhere that there's there's oil and gas drilling going on. Wow, if ever yeah. there was an indication of how little Fs they give. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if we they didn't gave, know it before. <laughs> they, they gave an example of one one event and it was a pipeline in the Caspian Sea and there was a leak of 427 tonnes of, of methane an hour in August. Wow. And they said that that single leak was the equivalent to emissions from 67 million cars. Jesus. And that was just one side. Wow. Wow. That um, is a massive number. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem with methane is that it's a much more, it's more short-lived, but it's a much more potent gas uh, when it comes to warming than CO2. So, um, so... Yeah, it's 80 times the warming potential. So it has the potential to way more quickly push us over the 1.5 degree or the 2 degree or safe limits that that will avoid triggering tipping points um methane can will just bring us there much much faster um than co2 but it also can be reduced more easily than co2 as well um so 40 percent of human caused methane emissions come from leaks from fossil fuel exploration production 
that rose almost 50% in 20 years. And guess what else it comes from? Another 40% comes from? Anybody? Bananas. Bananas. <laughs> no, agriculture. So our burping cattle are causing another 40% of the emissions. Yeah. Um, there was a study actually that came out. Feckers. That came out this week saying uh, that meat, dairy and rice production would push us past the 1.5 degree climate target on its own. So um, a study was done looking at global food systems and looked at if we continue producing food the way we are, that by the end of the century, that food production system alone will cause warming of 0.7 degrees. So even if we switched off all the fossil fuel um, appliances at this stage, if we continued with our food system as is, that would lead to 0.7 degrees of warming on its own by the end of the century and push us over the target. And that is once again largely down to methane, um, and as you said, Anna, um, it's cows, it's the meat in the dairy industry. Also rice production. Um, when paddy fields are flooded, um, they release a lot of methane. Um, but yeah, I think those two stories combined really show... That's all connected again. Yeah, yeah, and, and really show, you know, how urgent things are. The fact that the food system, you know, which isn't isn't the priority, really. We need food. It's the fossil fuel industry are yeah. playing the largest role in causing this problem, in covering up the problem, in delaying, in everything. But even now, at this stage, without them, the food system alone would push us up by 0.7 degrees um, yeah, by the end just, of the century. It's just <coughs> wild. But not to worry, because... Shell's new chief executive said in an interview that um, cutting oil and gas production is not healthy. Ash, so, grand, yeah, we're grand. Um, it's you know we really need, and, it's, and in particular, it's bad for consumers. So we definitely shouldn't be cutting oil and gas production. According to it's bad for consumers. Yeah, I know. Uh, according to I don't know how to pronounce his name, Wael Sawan. It's it's not healthy. And then he goes. I mean, the actual nerve of him saying this out loud. He said, "We've seen through 2022 the fragility of the energy system." To see prices start to skyrocket, that's not healthy for anyone, particularly consumers. This from Shell that made an obscene profit from the skyrocketing prices. So it's not healthy for consumers, but it's healthy for their bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the actual nerve of these people coming out and saying this stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Shall we? <laughs> Let's move on from that. <laughs> do you know what? Before we do move on, you know, last week I was saying that I was milling over whether I was going to turn into this person who's going to start chaining herself to BlackRock and all of that mm -hmm. kind of thing. I noticed this week when I was listening to the the you know the stories around the the housing crisis in Ireland. I was listening. and I was like, oh my god! And I just turned off the radio. I was like, Ugh, I just can't. Yeah. And I have the temptation to do the same with this. But actually what I think I'm going to do and what I would encourage other people to do is actually just like sit with the emotion of it. That's something that I have done a little bit in the last few years. It can be a very um, uncomfortable kind of 
place to be because you're like, oh my God, overwhelming. That's the word, not uncomfortable. Like actually so depressing and so consuming. Um, But actually, if you just sit with it for a few days or a few weeks or whatever it takes, eventually it kind of turns into anger. And okay, I'm not telling everyone to get angry, but actually I'm telling everyone to get angry. Mary Robinson says. Pardon? That's what Mary Robinson tells people to do. Oh my God, am I going to be the next president of Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> We'd vote for you, Kira. No, but in all seriousness, this is as much to myself, I suppose, as to anybody else. Because, yeah, yeah it's actually I mean, just insane. And I don't know what the answer is. And obviously, like the people listening to the Climate Alarm Clock, we're, like whatever, how many of us is, we're not going to turn the fossil fuel industry around in 20 days or whatever. But I suppose we just need to, I suppose, start get like joining the other side a little bit more and I'm mm. taking a step closer today again I suppose hopefully there are just some weeks though that it just you just get so overwhelmed by it and yeah. so frustrated by it so one of the things we have in our news roundup is the Ireland transport strategy that didn't get brought to cabinet this week um, and you're kind of looking at them going you know is there any leadership here whatsoever, you know, where Eamon Ryan is going to bring a transport strategy to cabinet, just a strategy for discussion. And because it mentioned things like congestion charges and fewer people driving cars, they, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael said no. And Veradker came out and said, we're not going to have any congestion charges in Dublin. You know, so when you just see the abject abdication of leadership responsibility for taking any action at all, it just wrecks my head. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, that was a rant. <laughs> no, rants welcome, Anna. Rants welcome. This is an open space. But, you know, the other thing is the good news from last week about the EU saying they're taking away um, fossil fuel cars by 2035 is now indefinitely postponed because Germany and Italy objected. Oh. Yeah, more good news. Okay, fabulous. On that note... <laughs> Okay, anything else for the news roundup, Dara? No, I don't think I have anything else. I think all the stories I can see are bad. So let's just uh, let's just leave it there for this week. Um, have we got an action for the week? So I think what I said, definitely go out and engage with the nature we still have, connect with it, and then figure out ways to protect it. Anything yeah, else on the action front? Yeah, absolutely. Kira. here's one for you. Um, Extinction Rebellion Ireland, after their very successful action on BlackRock Investments, are planning more activities. So if you or anybody else wants to get involved in that, go to extinctionrebellionireland.com and sign up. You don't have to glue yourself. They need lots of help with lots of other parts of that as well. So um, that's there for everybody to do. Cool. I'm going to check that out. Mine is uh, go for a walk and just digest the week. God, it's depressing out there. Perfect. Uh, and for people who are in the Dublin area, Climate Justice Week in DCU has a range of events and activity that are open to staff, students and the general public. So if, re- if you're in the area, check it out. It runs from the 20th to the 24th of March. All right, that is it for this week. Thanks a million, Anna and Kira. Great chatting to you as always. Was it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you listen? (laughs) And a reminder to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter and Mastodon at The Climate Alarm. 
do share the podcast with a friend if you enjoy listening in listening please uh get the word out to more people and if you want to you can help with the upkeep of the podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the climate alarm that's it for this week until next week goodbye Feckers. <laughs> <laughs>